This is Truth, Justice, and Hope, the podcast that explores the modern era of Superman comics from a humanist perspective and examines real life through the lens of a Superman fan. I'm Grant Richter, and this is episode 41. Truth and justice, my friends, and welcome back to the show. This episode, we are going to be talking about Superman number 12 and Supergirl number 4. Now, these uh, issues were both cover dated December of 2016, but since they both contain some horror-related themes, I thought it was appropriate that we are talking about them in October and I am very excited to talk about these issues with you. But first, of course, I have some thoughts from here at the Fortress of Solitude. Now, I know it's still a couple weeks till Halloween by the time this episode's coming out. But since we are going with some horror-esque themes in this episode, I kind of wanted to explore that. Um, the the theme of Halloween and horror and stuff like that in this in this segment. Now I originally was going to talk about how much I like Halloween, and but then I realized I don't really like it as much as I used to. Um, when I was a kid, it was an excuse to dress up like a superhero, of course. But the time that I most have the fond memories of Halloween was probably in my very early thirties. And I'd been at my job long enough that I could accrue like weeks worth of vacation time in a year. And I would take the entire week of Halloween off and I would spend the day reading comics and playing video games. And um, the night of Halloween, uh, my wife and I would rent a bunch of like really cheesy horror and sci-fi movies from Blockbuster and split a bottle of wine and have a date night. And it was great. Um, that's not the case anymore. We, you know, now we have a kid, we have other responsibilities, so forth and so on, other priorities. Um, and it's, it's just not the same, um, when you're like kind of focused on kid stuff for Halloween, or at least it is for me. It's not quite the same. Um, so then I was going to talk about how much I like the fall and I used to really, really love the fall, uh, especially in the town where we lived in Georgia. Because, you know, Georgia is a great, or at least north, like Atlanta and on up, is a really good area for fall leaves. And I love the smell of fall leaves and when it gets cooler and then all that stuff. But I live in central Florida now, so that's not really a thing either. Um, I'm just kind of grabbing my face in pain as I talk about it. Um, Because, like, today it was 83 degrees outside and we have mostly palm trees and pine trees. So again, not the same thing. So what I was gonna talk about instead is kind of my brief foray into horror fandom when I was in high school. And, <laughs> and I'm kind of embarrassed to talk about it, honestly. So in the 
first half of 1990. I was getting settled into a town that we'd moved to that previous fall. And I was kind of going through some stuff. And I kind of got into horror movies and the horror novels if I'm being perfectly honest, as a way to kind of like shock people and um, kind of make people upset because you know, I was like 15 years old and I was going through some stuff, um, which worked. And I grew out of it after a few months. It got really old really quick. Um, but also, it was a w- it was a way for me to kind of confront a lot of of childish fears that I'd had growing up. Like when I was, I used to really, really like to watch old monster movies and stuff, but anything more intense than like the universal monster movies would really set me on edge. I had a, you know, I've talked about before, I had a lot of anxiety as a kid. So when I got older, it was kind of felt like a point of, of, you know, growing up to kind of confront uh, the things that I was scared of as a kid. And I watched a lot of horror movies that came out in the 80s during that period. And I watched like Hellraiser and American Werewolf in London and John Carpenter's The Thing. I did watch The Lost Boys when it first came out on video. That, you know, that, I, that wasn't a very intense movie. Um, but I really kind of, you know, surrounded myself with that to kind of show myself that I was growing out of those kind of things. And so along that line, I want to talk about what scares me now. And obviously, one of the things that scares me now is the idea of something happening to my family. You know, that's the biggest thing. But next to that is the things that I hold dear ideologically going away or being corrupted. And that, of course, is truth, justice, and hope. And... That is a thing that is very much on the precipice right now. Um, you know, if you didn't know I was going to turn this into a political talk, you should have seen it coming. Sorry. And I know sometimes people do the fast forward button during when I talk about politics, and I don't do it very often, but I'm going to ask that you bear with me on this one because it's important. So we are a few weeks away from an incredibly important election. And if the red team regains control, excuse me, if the red team regains control, truth, justice, and hope are going away. Truth will be replaced with misinformation. Justice will be replaced with injustice and hope for many, many, many people. If you're basically, if you're not a rich, white, straight, cisgendered, Christian male, you're not going to have much in the way of hope because lots of people's rights are going to be stripped away. And if we lose Congress, it's, it's over. We're, we're not going to have any more fair elections. And, um, you know, I, I don't want women to lose their bodily autonomy. I don't want people of color to become second-class citizens. I don't want the LBGTQ community to lose basically all their rights. And that's what's going to happen. 
Um, but going back to my brief foray into horror, one of the things that got me out of it was because I became frustrated that in most horror movies and in most horror novels, people don't fight back. Occasionally there are, you know, like Lost Boys. You know, they, they you know, rally together and they get the steaks and the holy water and the garlic and all that stuff. In Nightmare on Elm Street 3, the good guys learn to manifest their dream abilities. Most of them die anyway. But, you know, stuff like that. Um, and that's actually when I kind of transitioned my interest from... I lost the interest in horror movies really fast. But my interest in horror novels transitioned into, like, dark fantasy. Like, there was a series I really liked called Necroscope, where it's about a guy who can talk to the dead, ends up fighting, like, these alien vampires and stuff like that. And, and there was a series of novels based on Frank Frazetta's Death Dealer and things along those lines. Um, because I like the idea of fighting back against what scares you and what's threatening you and we can do that and we can do it peacefully and we can do it within the system and we just have to vote so by now uh, if you vote by mail those have gone out I have mine you you can use it to do your research even if you don't vote by, vote by mail they usually send out sample ballots use it do your research about the candidates. If you're going to vote by mail, do your research. Fill it out. Send it in quickly. Um, if you're like me and you are worried about it getting lost in the mail, fill it out. Drop it off in a ballot box at your elections office as soon as you can. If you're going to vote in person, do it as early as you can and make your vote count. Fight back against the thing that is scary and the thing that threatens us and that is the loss of truth, justice, and hope. And those are all the thoughts I have about that. So let's go talk about some comic books. And we're back. And again, we are going to be starting our comic book extravaganza this episode with Superman number 12 from December 7th of 2016. That is the cover date anyway. And this issue, issue excuse me, is written by Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason. It is penciled by one of my favorites, Doug Mankey. Uh, it is inked by Jaime Mendoza and Christian Alamy. Will Quintana does the colors, and Rob Lee is the letterer. Uh, Mankey, Mendoza, and Quintana did the main cover, and Andrew Robinson did the variant. And I love the main cover of this. Um, it has the version of Frankenstein, who was introduced in Grant Morrison and Doug Mankey's Seven Soldiers Frankenstein miniseries back around 2008, I think. Um, on the cover, there's a blank orangish background, and he's pulling his his sleeveless trench coat and red leather military-style vest open to reveal the Superman logo stitched into his green skin, and he looks absolutely awesome. 
Um, I love the fact that Mankey is uh, taking his turn on the book for these two issues since Mankey is the co-creator of this version of Frankenstein. Um, one thing I love about this character, and this is such a stupid little thing, I love the fact that he kind of sort of has a mohawk. Um, it's not like a real high mohawk. It's kind of short, um, but it is very much shaved high up on the side. Um, and that is a detail that was missed on the new... Um, McFarlane Toys Frankenstein figure that's coming out in the near future. They've got him with the traditional kind of Boris Karloff Frankenstein hair, which really kind of misses the mark, but this cover is great. Um, the variant by Robinson is pretty good. Um, it's got Frankenstein kind of sort of in the background, and he's standing up on something, and he's holding a glowing sword up in the air with his right hand. He's holding um, an old kind of colonial era single shot style pistol in his left hand and it looks like electricity is crackling out of the bolts on the side of his head um, that is a design distinction on this one versus the classic universal monsters version where instead of the bolts on the neck it's the bolts on his temples next to him is a character who does not appear in this issue um, it is the bride also introduced during seven soldiers and she has the Universal Monsters hairstyle, only she has a, um, she's wearing like a bustier and a red, probably leather, high-collared overcoat and has four arms, and each of her arms is holding some kind of green energy pistol. And Superman is right in the front, um, and he's kind of mean-mugging the camera with his eyes glowing. I still don't love the way Robinson uh, draws or paints or whatever Superman, especially his mouth area, and this looks kind of odd, but Frankenstein and the Bride look really cool. But a quick bit of recap before we get started. Um, as we know from many, many recaps and previous issues, this version of Lois and Clark and their young son, John, are from the pre-Flashpoint universe. They've been um, not existing under the name of Kent and Lane since coming to this universe, since it already was a Clark Kent and a Lois Lane. They've been going by the last name Smith. They've been living in Hamilton County, which is about 300 miles north of Metropolis. And recently, um, Lois not only has kind of insinuated herself into the life of her now deceased post-Flashpoint counterpart at the Daily Planet, but she has also expressed interest at working at the local Hamilton County newspaper, the Hamilton Horn. And that is all we really need to know going into this issue. So it starts out in the middle of Hamilton County in very much the kind of town square kind of area. It reminds me a lot of the what we refer to as the square in the town where I lived for about 20 years before moving to Florida in like south... Uh, metro Atlanta area, Georgia. Uh, kind of miss it. Um, but she's ridden her bicycle to the Hamilton Horn. She goes inside and she meets a lady named Candace, who is the editor of the paper, and she's showing her around. And they're talking about how, you know, Lois has a lot to juggle. You know, Lois obviously doesn't mention how she's filled, how she's kind of filling the shoes of her post-Flashpoint counterpart, but she just says she has a lot going on in her life. Her life's very complicated, but she wants 
to make time to work for this paper because she feels like small town issues are where national issues begin, which is a really good point. Sorry about that pause there. Um, I am recording in my car in the parking lot of the middle school where my daughter takes her violin lessons and a big old bus just pulled up behind me and so I didn't want you guys to have to hear the squealing brakes and the and the shouting of many children. But we're back. <laughs> but anyway, like I was saying, you know, Lois has a really good point because, you know, think about it, all these things that people end up arguing about once they get into Congress, this starts at a local level somewhere and just builds steam and momentum until somebody takes it up, you know, for good or for ill and makes a national issue of it. So um, good on Lois. But as um, but as Lois and Candace are talking, Frankenstein bursts through the wall of the newspaper into Candace's office and says, Outcast, I have finally found you. And Frankenstein is holding a big old sword in his right hand. And he's holding a gun in his left hand that looks like the most amazing thing that you would find at the Halloween Superstore ever. It kind of looks like, um, like again on the cover, kind of a, like a colonial era single shot pistol crossed with a train like an old steam locomotive with a giant bat on the end of it in place of the hammer and it's just amazing and goofy and i love it now one thing i have to say i am slightly disappointed that Mankey is not inking himself on this issue um, my favorite work that Mankey has done is uh, final crisis superman beyond the two-parter that takes place between like issues I don't know, like three and six of that series. Um, and there he had a lot of inkers working on them, so I can't really pinpoint which one was my favorite of that. But on Frankenstein, um, Seven Soldiers, Mankey inked himself, and Frankenstein looked freaking amazing in that one. Um, I understand why they didn't do that it was Superman. Um, when, um, when Mankey was working on Superman, the man of steel in the early two thousands. And when he went on to work on JLA, I think Dustin Guen, I know I'm saying his name wrong. It's like N G U Y E N. I don't remember if the N is silent or the G is silent. I'm sorry, but I'm going to say Guen. Um, he did a real, really good, good job on that. And um, that inker gives Mankey style an almost geometric feel to it. Here, um, Mendoza and Alamate, they do a great job. Do not get me wrong. I am not d dismissing them anyway. But they make Frankenstein look slightly more cartoony than I really like him to be. But I think with him being in a Superman book, you know, it, it's not like the universe changes the way it looks depending on what book you're in, but it's like you're looking at it through the filter of how that character's um, outlook is. And so, yes, you have a very dark character, but you're looking at it through a Superman filter. So it has to be, unless you're doing a really, really, really dark Superman story, which this is not, you kind of want to tone down that super edginess. But it still looks, again, amazing. I love this version of Frankenstein. Sadly, I don't love the series that he has appeared in the most, which is Frankenstein Agent of Shade, the um, New 52 series. 
I tried, I gave that a shot, I really did. It just didn't hold my attention. And, you know, part of that's because Mankey wasn't drawing it and Morrison wasn't writing it or Tomasi and Gleason weren't writing it. But anyway, <laughs> on with the show. So um, Frankenstein, he has his gun pointed at Candace, says, your continued ability to elude me is contendable, but that ends here and now. Shade has placed a, has a special place in hell reserved for you, beast. And Shade stands for the Superhuman Advanced Defense Executive, which is kind of like government monster hunters he's about to blow candace's head off but then lois hits him with her backpack and makes a miss and blows a hole another hole in the wall so now candace's office has two holes in the walls and uh and lois says leave her alone or i'll and frank says you'll do nothing apostate but face the same purification now the frankenstein story is always kind of or at least here in in the morrison miniseries um, has always had kind of a pseudo-religious feel to it. Um, I don't know how that works out. I think apostate is like someone who denies a religion. Kind of like a heretic. I, I don't know how that applies here, but I think it's a cool thing to shout at someone to call him apostate. But, um, and so Frankenstein grabs her and holds her up against the wall and like he sniffs her and he says, you are not in league with her, just an innocent human who is only in my way and tosses her aside. And uh, he goes back after Candace, who's saying, what do you want from me? I've done nothing. You're confused. And uh, Frankenstein says, you have put on a play and the time has come to finally draw the curtain. Now, one little detail that I forgot to mention during the recap is when the eradicator, the post-Flashpoint version of the Eradicator was trying to kill John, Superman took the fight, along with Lois and John, to Batman's Batcave on the Moon, which is a fun thing to say. And there she donned a suit of Batman-themed power armor called the Hellbat, and Lois apparently kept a souvenir from that, because here she puts on a Hellbat gauntlet and blasts um, Frankenstein Iron Man style. And it appears to stun him pretty good. So Lois grabs Candace and they go running out through the hole in the side of the office and they find Frankenstein's hover bike, which is another fun thing to say, Frankenstein's hover bike. Because the concept, I, I just cannot tell you enough how fun the concept of Morrison and Mankey's Frankenstein is. If you have not read Seven Soldiers Frankenstein, Go read it. You don't need to read any other parts of Seven Soldiers. They're all pretty neat. Some are better than others. They're all, it's like a, the team that never existed. It's like they're all fighting the same cause, but they never really meet up, I think. Something like that. Um, it's got pretty much like the first trans character in DC history, even though it's never really officially acknowledged, the Morrison's version of The Shining Knight. But it's really, really cool. And Frankenstein rides like bug horses on the moon and fights like like evil fairies and all kinds of cool stuff like that i again if you have not read it go read it it's great but anyway um lois manages to get the bike to turn on and she and candace get in it and they go flying off but frankenstein grabs on at the last second and <laughs> there's an awesome set of panels so like it's one big panel with one, two, three, four, five little smaller panels stuck into it. And so the big one is Frankenstein holding on to the side of the hover bike with one hand with his sword drawn on the other as Lois zooms them away. 
and Candace is saying he's grabbed on and Lois is saying I know I felt the weight difference and uh, Lois is flying up in the air and says she's gonna try to shake him loose and then we get we focus on Frankenstein who goes Grr. and then we focus on him really really close with him looking out the side of his eye and growling Grr. and then we see Superman's fist in the last panel which is great and I love the little details that Mankey puts on Frankenstein, like the fact that his eyelids are almost always half closed, which makes him look, you know, really adds to that kind of zombie effect. And his teeth are really well defined, which is what you want to do if you want to make something extra creepy. But um, Superman punches Frankenstein. They go flying, or Frankenstein goes flying off of the um, off of the hover bike, and. Uh, and Lois says she's going to find a place to land while Superman deals with Frankenstein, who I honestly don't know if they've ever encountered each other. Um, now, I want to rewind what I said about the release date. This It would have had to have come out in 2005 or 2006 because I remember Frankenstein being at the Battle of Metropolis in uh, Infinite Crisis. And I remember he had a small part in Final Crisis. So, yeah, definitely would have had to have been before 2008. Um, and, uh, you know, Frankenstein goes flying and he lands in a, in a field somewhere. And uh, I like Superman saying, I didn't hit you as hard as I could, which is a good bit of narration for the reader. Because uh, if you're not familiar with this character, you don't know how strong he is. Superman hit him as hard as he could. Frankenstein would probably fly apart. But... Uh, I have to say, Frankenstein is not intended to, is not a likable character. He's not intended to be likable, a likable character. He is, well, he's not intended to be nice. <laughs> he's not the kind of person that he endears himself to people, but he's interesting enough that I like him nonetheless. And uh, Superman says, I suggest you explain when you're moving through this town like a wrecking ball. And Frankenstein says, I suggest you move aside and allow me to do my job. And so Frankenstein just pulls out his his Halloween store steam train gun and shoots Superman in the face, shoots him in the eye, and Superman's like, uh. Now, this gun has to be magic, right? There's no way that this gun that has like energy shooting out of it and a steampunk vampire aesthetic isn't magic. And it it stuns Superman, but does not kill him. And I will say, this adds credence to my theory about Superman and magic. Some people, who don't know any better, think that Superman is more vulnerable to magic than the average person. That is not true. Officially, in canon, Superman is as vulnerable to magic as everybody else. However, that has been shown to not be accurate time and time again. For example, in... Um, the Blaze Satanus War, which I'm going to get to in the next few weeks on the Patreon, I think Superman gets blasted with Hellfire by Blaze, who's a who's a like an arch demon. She's like one of three rulers of Hell, and it hurts him, it stuns him. I think it knocks him out, maybe knocks him unconscious, but it doesn't kill him. It doesn't incinerate him like it would everybody else. So, um, my take on Superman and magic is, yeah, it hurts him, but it doesn't hurt him as bad as it would the average person. I, I, I like the theory that Superman is such a grounded part of the physical universe that um, he has some resistance to magic. It's not just part of his innate toughness or the yellow sun thing. 
it's that you know Superman's like the chosen one of Kismet, the goddess of the of the least uh, new Earth between Crisis on Infinite Earths and Infinite Crisis. I think there's you know there's more to it than than just well Yellow Sun makes him really powerful. But anyway, uh, so uh, Frankenstein picks up a tractor and hits Superman with a tractor, which is fun. But then he gets shot in the chest with shotgun, and there is Cobb, the, I forget what his last name is, um, but he's the the Smiths, the Kents, next farm over, neighbor. Um, his granddaughter, Kathy, is John's uh, best friend outside of Damien at this point, and Cobb's like, leave him alone and get off my land. And I know he probably doesn't sound like that, but that's my farmer voice, best I can do. And Frankenstein says, I'm not going any book. And then he gets shot in the chest again. And as Cobb is calmly and quietly re- reloading his double barrel shotgun, Frankenstein just walks up and snatches out of his hand and throws it over his shoulder. And uh, <laughs> they have themselves a little conversation. Cobb says, you're a persistent creature. I'll give you that. And Frankenstein goes, mm, as are you, which is pretty fun. And he presses a little button on a remote control device. Superman taps Frankenstein on the shoulder and then punches him out. They go flying into a tree. Um, Superman tells Cobb to go back inside and be safe. And Cobb just very calmly goes, okay, will do. So, seems like there might be a little more to Cobb than we're getting here. He is awfully calm in the face of freaking Frankenstein. But, um... (laughs) Um... Frankenstein gets up. Superman's hovering above him and says, Are we really going to keep this up? Lay down your sword right now before someone... But then Lois accidentally crashes into Superman with with um, Frankenstein's hover bike and slams him into a tree. It wasn't Lois, however. It was Frankenstein using his remote control device. And so Frankenstein grabs Candace by the neck, slams her up against the tree, and he's got his sword out, and he's got it... Um, like blade down, like the like the pommel of it is coming up above his thumb, and the blade and the crossbar is going down below his pinky. And he says, "I believe it is time for a little illumination." And then uh, Candace says, "You can't just stand there and let him murder me in cold blood." But then Frankenstein says, "The truth hits everybody, Superman," and he slices off Candace's face which goes flying into Superman's hands and he's holding it and it has glowing green eyes and is surrounded by purple goo. And then we see that Candace was more than she appeared. She is a purple-skinned alien or demon or something with black markings and green uh, slitted pupil cat eyes and huge fangs and like a mohawk fin going down the middle of its head. And Superman says, Krug! I guess that's the being's name. The only cold-blooded murderer here is you. And he has, uh, Frankenstein has his sword up against Krug's throat. And the next issue blurb says, Here comes the bride, which I am as excited for as I was this issue. Because I think the bride is as equally cool as our boy Frankenstein. This issue was so much fun. There's not a lot to it. Honestly, it's a big fighty fight. There isn't a whole lot of dialogue. Um, it's just Frankenstein being 
insane and awesome and a wrecking ball and a tactless murder machine for the greater good and Superman trying to stop him um, which Superman would do because even if even if this thing that Frankenstein has in his grip is a universe-wide serial killer and even if you're the kind of person that believes in the death penalty Superman doesn't and Superman will fight for the lives of all living things, no matter how terrible they are. So, yeah, absolutely delightful and very, very fun issue. Again, I love anytime Mankey is on this book. As much as I like Gleason, I do like Mankey a little more. Um, he's just been the artist on several of my favorite. DC stories in general and Superman stories specifically and it's always fun 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 to see him draw two characters I like one of which is my favorite superhero so <laughs> that is all I can really think of to talk about this issue uh, if you have questions or comments or thoughts about this comic book please hit me up and I will read them on the next episode but in the meantime, I'm going to go take an ad break, and I will be right back to talk about the next comic in the lineup. And we're back. And as I stated at the top of the show, we are going to be covering Supergirl number four for our second comic book excursion. Uh, this issue came out December 14th of 2016. And let me get to the credits. There we go. It's written by Steve Orlando with art by Brian Ching. The colorist is Michael Atea, and the letterer is Steve Wands. The main cover is by uh, Ching and Atea, and the variant cover is by Bengal. Just Bengal. Um, so let's look at the covers. So the main cover is uh, it's a split image. On the left-hand side, we have Supergirl being wrapped up by technology, like technology coming alive and grabbing her and pulling her down. In the right-hand side of the cover is the cyborg Superman of this era floating above uh, National City while his uh, Kryptonian zombie cyborgs invade the city. So let's do a little recap before we get started. Oh, the variant, by the way, is really cute. It is of... Uh, Supergirl holding up a truck, like a like a tractor trailer. She's on her knees. She's holding up the truck easily with one hand and reaching down to grab a kitten with the other. And the kitten is drawn to look like Streaky the Super Cat. It's orange with a with a white lightning bolt type uh, pattern going down its side. It was really cute. And um, you know, I've said before, I really like this Supergirl series because. Supergirl is written like she is probably 15 or 16 years old, and the artists make her look like she's 15 or 16 years old, unlike the Supergirl of the uh, 2000s, starting in 2004, I think, where she was written to be 15 or 16 years old, but she was drawn like she was 21 or 22 when every supervillain was trying to get in her skirt, which is gross. All right, so, so let's do some recap. So... Much like the Supergirl TV show, um, this Supergirl uh, goes by the name of Cara Danvers. She has been, she works for the DEO, the Department of Extra Normal Operations. She has been assigned um, uh, Eliza and Jeremiah Danvers as her foster parents. 
Uh, she lives in National City. Um, again, much like the TV show, she works for Catco Worldwide Inc. Only because she's a high school student, she's an intern, and not a struggling, you know, person person struggling to make it into the journalism business. Um, at the school that she goes to, she has a intellectual rival by the name of Ben Rubel, who's a character that we'll talk about very, very shortly. And recently, she has encountered the cyborg Superman of this era, who debuted during the New 52, who revealed himself to actually be her father, Zor-El. And recently, she discovered that uh, Zor-El has zombified the the former inhabitants of Argo City, who are all dead. He's fitted them with cybernetic parts, and he has... Um, used a device to replicate their personalities, but completely under his control. And his plan is to siphon life force from human beings, which he calls Odic Force, to power them. And of course, he's going to take over the world, starting with National City. And that's where we start. So we open in National City at the Ormond building. Um... I don't know what the significance of that is, honestly. And Ben Rubel, who I just mentioned, is on the phone with his mom. And I really, really sympathize with Ben. Um, he's saying, yes, mother, Miss Grant mentioned you. We barely talked since you shipped me out here. I thought you'd like to know I'm alive. And his mom says, of course, Benjamin. I see your caller ID. I know you're alive. And Ben says, great. Anyway, I made it to Miss Grant's Young Innovators program. I'm helping launch CatCo Worldwide Media. And his mom says, surprising. I never saw Cat Grant as charitable. And, man, I really strongly dislike Ben's mom already. You know, he, he's saying, hey, you never call. And, you know... But she, you know, by saying, you know, I thought I'd let you know I'm alive, and she completely misses it, and like, well, yeah, you're obviously you're alive. I know it's you. I see your call ID, and then she dismisses his accomplishment of getting into this young, uh, this young innovators program by saying that Cat uh, must have given it to him because she was in a charitable mood. So, ugh, yeah, don't like Ben's mom, but you know, obviously we're not supposed to. And so he goes inside. He goes to Cat. And um, she's talking about how CatCo was launching a streaming service, and um, and she wants him to become familiar with it and know all the ins and outs of it. Oh no, she's saying the Daily Star has launched a streaming service, and she wants him to learn the Daily Star's streaming service so she can figure out what what needs to go in theirs in CatCo's. But they look out the window and they see the zombie cyborg Kryptonians flying in. And they and cyborg Superman Zor-El land in the middle of the city. And um, he's talking about how um, that Earth, a national city, is an imposter home for his daughter. And... Um, but how it serves a purpose because basically he's going to use the people as human batteries. So from there we go to the Danvers family brownstone where uh, Elijah, not Elijah, uh, Jeremiah is on the phone with his boss, Cameron Chase, who I don't think we see on, no, 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 because um, basically Martian Manhunter 
is in charge of the EO on the Supergirl TV show, which is interesting. It's like a combination of Hank Henshaw and the Martian Manhunter, which is an interesting combo. Definitely threw me for a loop in season one. Um, and she and um, but Cameron Chase, uh, who is I think she's awesome. She's strapping her tactical vest on over her business suit and, and trench coat, which is a great look and uh, telling him it's all hands on deck. And she is also on the phone with Dr. Veritas, who is a scientist. Um, I, yeah, and she's at DEO Ghost Site 252, where they are housing a former citizen of Argo City who has red kryptonite poisoning named Laron who transforms into a red Kryptonian werewolf, which is just rad. And the way that Chase and Veritas are talking to each other, it implies that they are in a romantic relationship or at least have romantic feelings toward each other, which is pretty cool. Um, but for, from there, we go back to the ruins of Argo City floating in space where Elijah Danvers has been seriously hurt by Allura, or zombie cyborg Allura. And she's lying on the floor, and we see a like an, um, an EEG meter, like the heart meter, and it's just going thump, 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 and it's getting slowly fainter and fainter. And Supergirl herself has been trapped in this big technology cage, which is made out of nanotech, and it adapts to everything she tries to do so that she is not able to escape of it. And she is begging her mother to not let um, Eliza die. And Allura is saying, daughter, do not be afraid. Your nano-adaptive, your techno-adaptive bonds won't release until your father's work is complete. Argo City's people were born and you are safe. And... Um, and basically, at this point, it's just a back and forth between Kara and her mom trying to get her mom to save Eliza. And Eliza calls, um, no, Allura calls Eliza an imposter. And she reiterates how um, the cyborgs are powered by Odic Force. And I talked about this last time we talked about the Supergirl uh, series. That's an interesting term. Um, if you're not familiar with it, Odic Force was a theory that was that was come up with by a German, you know, quote-unquote scientist, pseudoscientist in the late 1800s. And it's basically like chi or life force. And I think it's interesting that they use that particular one just because so many Norse things were co-opted by the Nazis during World War II for symbolism. And so it kind of, you know, it kind of gives that air of uh, brutal authoritarianism um, for Zorel, which is a you know, pretty neat touch. Um, so we go back there. To, uh, so from there, we go back to National City and the cyborgs are marching through the streets and people are calling, you know, mentioning that they're wearing Supergirl's symbol. And I think that's interesting too, because Superman is probably more recognizable to the people 
of Earth in general than Supergirl is, but because National City is Supergirl's stomping ground, they immediately think of Supergirl, which is a neat touch. And uh, inside CatCo, uh, Ben points out that the cyborgs seem to be attempting to take over the technology as well. There's that kind of like matrix scroll all over their screens. Um, downtown, we see that one of the cyborgs is attacking Cameron Chase. She uses this cool, like, giant cable-style gun, which apparently shoots a gravity beam to lower herself to the ground after, after she's knocked off the top of the DEO headquarters. Um, back in Argo City, um, Kara is still trying to reason with her mom, and when her mom's not looking, she keeps trying different tactics to escape. First uses her super breath to freeze the nanotech cube that she's in and then she uses heat vision to superheat it which is pretty neat um but none of those things work and she eventually just kind of like not gives up but she kind of pauses to regroup to figure out what to do next she keeps her mom talking and um her mom is saying that um that she she Allura believes that Supergirl did want this to happen. She says, Zor-El still has one Kryptonian ear. Do you think he'd ever forget the sound of his daughter's voice? He heard you for months. Unthinkable customs, strange food, the whispers of your peers in their laughable schools, your fraudulent parents' pathetic attempt to use our language and culture, the constant comparisons to your traitorous cousin. You did ask for this, Kara, near every night. You hated it here. And Kara says, yeah, I do miss Argo, and I don't like Earth as much, but that's not what I meant. And she says, and you should know that. You would know that if you were yourself. Imposter, fraud, my traitorous cousin, your nephew, are those your words? You sound more like father. Now, it's an interesting comparison to this version of Zor-El and Allura that they had in the late 2000s, which I'm currently reading for the first time, the new Krypton arc. And in that version of... Supergirl's parents, Allura was a coldly rational, um, the cold rational partner, and Zorel was an artist. And they show that there's several different factions within Krypton society, and the faction that Allura was in, um, the Science Guild, most closely resembles the John Byrne imagining of what the entire Kryptonian culture was like and Zor-El was a much more emotional artist and um, when Zor-El is murdered in that era Allura becomes like almost an iron-fisted ruler of um, of New Krypton which is the remnants of um, not Argo City but uh, Kandor there you go that's the one and so um, it's an interesting switch up here. We're showing that, um, well, let me go on first. So um, as Eliza is getting closer and closer to death, Supergirl continues and said, I've grown. I've seen other worlds. There is more to the universe than the needs of one people, even our own. Father can't accept that. His desperation to save our people led to their destruction. He's changed. He'd sacrifice anything to undo his failure. No matter what he says, this is not for me. It's about his shame. It's for him. Look at Eliza. She came here even when I told her not to. She put my needs ahead of her own to protect me from my own parents. 
Where does Father put his needs? Don't you see, Zorel is not listening to what I want. Not anymore. He's telling me what I want. He only heard what he wanted to, but you've always listened to me. That's why, even knowing Father's plans might be madness, I came here. I didn't believe him, but I believed in you, Mother. And that breaks through the programming that Zorel had insto- uh, installed in basically the drone that he'd made his wife into and Allura kneels down over Eliza and she gives her back all the life force that had been stolen from her and we see her start her speech start to fizzle and crack and um, her speech bubbles become like a staticky radio and she says and between all the the crackles and and fizzes she says I'm sorry Karanizu which was her her like affectionate pet name for Kara. Father's programming, I couldn't see across space, the gulf of our tragedy all this time. Your mother yet lives. Um, and that that's pretty awesome. And so um, the problem remains that Kara is still trapped in this adaptive nanotech device. And uh, Eliza says, well, I'll try to get you out. And Kara says, no. That could that could kill you. Interesting little thing I just noticed. Eliza only has one hand, and I don't know what the backstory is with that. Um, I have not read. I'm only up to like issue 15 of like Supergirl and Superman and Action Comics of the New 52 run, so I'm not super familiar with all of their backstory. And, you know, she didn't lose her hand in this confrontation, but uh, apparently she had a cybernetic hand and it must have gotten blown off in the last issue. And I just didn't notice it. But um, Supergirl tells her to stay back. The adaptive nanotechnology can hurt her. But she says there, um, she keeps saying she's hearing all these cries from Earth. And she says, I can hear this machine. Its adaptive cells speak to each other on a specific frequency. If I can isolate it, I could. And then she does something we've never seen from the Superman family before. She does a super scream. And she screams at a certain pitch, which um, which she says, flooded the air with the same frequency the adaptive cells used to coordinate countermeasures. It deafened them. Now they cannot work to adapt me. And then she says, stand back as she shatters the machine around her. And that's really cool. That reminds me of um, Final Crisis, Superman Beyond, and the last issue of Final Crisis. And there's at least one other example um, that Morrison wrote where... Oh, it's it's everything to do with the, um, the Ultima Thule in, in the mythology that, that Morrison has created since Final Crisis, where it's this whole thing with where sound is this kind of universal constant, and it's the vibration that underlies everything. And, you know, they, they, they introduced the Ultima Thule in Final Crisis Superman Beyond, and it's powered by music. And then Superman does this specific, like, whistle to disrupt um, Darkseid's uh, bodiless consciousness and the end of Final Crisis and and all that stuff. It, it's, it, it's not the same thing, but it does 
bring it to mind, which is you know pretty cool because I love Grant Morrison's writing and I love um, the Final Crisis um, two-parter. Anyway, and so um, Supergirl and Eliza hug and they say you know basically Supergirl tells her you know, you've been a really good mom. You know you're not my you know, I'll, I'll never think of you the same as I think of my birth mom, but you've been a really good mom to me as well, which is nice. And then back on Earth, we see Jeremiah fighting the cyborgs, and he is not doing well. He's using like a, some kind of laser gun, some kind of energy gun. He's got a tactical vest on, but he's getting thrown left and right. And then... Um, and he's saying, we're losing. These things aren't Superman, but they're powerful. And everyone they touch, they bring death. And then from above him, a word bubble says, you're wrong, imposter. The touch of my people brings life. And he looks up and there's the cyborg Superman hovering over him. He says, but not to you. And that is how the issue ends. And I thought this was going to be a really long issue of the comic. Because it says it's 32 pages. The issue itself, including the including the variant cover is only 19 pages long then there are like 12 pages of ads there's an ad between the two variants and then there's like one two three four five uh five pages of ads for justice league versus suicide squad and then an ad for the flash graph um trade paperback and an ad for a Justice League paperback, and an ad for a Batman paperback, and an ad for a Superman trade paperback, and an ad for the Justice League Money Morphin Power Rangers crossover issue, and an ad for the uh, out-of-continuity Supergirl being super miniseries that was about to come out at this time. That is insane. Why would they put all that in the digital copy? Ugh. That is especially on the app. I mean, if it was like the version that you bought from Comixology or whatever, sure. Especially if you were buying it at the time it was coming out. But man, that's a ton of unnecessary filler. But anyway, that's the issue. Um, I like it. Um, I think the zombie, you know, the zombie cyborgs are a neat concept. They're not exactly creepy. I think the idea of them was more creepy than anything. Brian Singh doesn't really draw anything to look exactly creepy. He just draws stuff to look cool. And I'm perfectly fine with that. He's really, really good with facial expressions. Um, but it is kind of cartoony. And so it's hard to think of these cyborgs as, you know, creepy or scary or anything. Um, if they were drawn by Doug Mankey, I guarantee they would be. Um, it's the, the Doug Mankey all love episode. But anyway, um, that is it for our comic book coverage. I know we're coming in a little bit short this episode, but I apologize. Um, but I will be back in just a minute to wrap everything up. And that does it for episode 41 of Truth, Justice, and Hope a Superman podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to me talk about these issues as much as I enjoy talking about them. If you do enjoy what I'm doing and you like to support the show financially and hear more of what I'm doing, I would invite you to check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash truth, justice, and hope. 
There I talk about my favorite classic post-crisis Superman stories, beginning with the Pocket Universe Superboy saga from 1987. I'm currently in the middle of Panic in the Sky from 1992. There's a ton of content on the Patreon, and there's going to be a ton coming out in the future. Uh, another way you can support the show is by giving me a five-star rating wherever it is that you get your podcast. And you can also follow me on Twitter at About Superman. Next episode, we are going to be talking about Action Comics number 969 and New Superman number 6, both cover dated December 14th of 2016. And if you, again, if you haven't voted yet, uh, please either do so by mail or make plans to do so in person sometime in the future. Fight back against what is scary. And until next week, remember to fight fear at every turn with an open mind and an open heart. Love you.